Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 11th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. Well, first let's have a look at the weather for eastern Iowa. Today in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area, uh, it will be sunny, the wind from the southwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 41 and a low of 22. Tomorrow, Sunday, Partly cloudy, the wind from the southwest at 5 to 15 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 43 and a low of 25. On Monday, it'll be mostly sunny, the wind from the west at 5 to 15 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 46 and a low of 29. And then on Tuesday, rain is likely, the wind from the northwest at 20 to 30 miles per hour. We'll have a high of 43 and a low of 38. The normal high for this day is 31, the normal low, 14. The record high was 61 in 1999. The record low was hmm, minus 21 in 2014. The, day, um, the sun will set tonight at 535. It will rise tomorrow at 707. We have a little weather story today, uh, this one from meteorologist Corey Thompson. Risk of flooding below, below normal. The National Weather Service has issued its first of three spring flooding outlooks, which is an, which is an annual heads up for what we can expect as we transition from winter to spring. As one might expect, the outlook for eastern Iowa shows a near or below normal risk of flooding on all Mississippi River tributaries, like the Iowa and Cedar Rivers. The Mississippi River itself has a near or above normal risk for flooding based largely on the amount of water stored in a deep snowpack upstream in Minnesota and Wisconsin. For example, The risk of flooding in Cedar Rapids is put at 18%, which is less than the historical average of a 24% risk for minor flooding, period. We will be monitoring closely to see if anything changes. And again, that little weather story is from meteorologist Corey Thompson. And now I will turn to the front page of today's Gazette for our first story. And this story, <coughs> accompanied by a, uh, a photograph, <coughs> uh, is uh, appears under the headline, Please Don't Kill Me, Deputy Recalls Shooting. Testimony begins in trial for man accused of trying to kill law officer. And this story is by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. A Lynn County Sheriff's deputy testified Friday he reached for the robbery suspect's arm to detain him, but the man pulled away, took out a gun, and started firing. Deputy William Halverson said he realized he'd been shot. He didn't know how many times. Quote, it felt like a hundred times, he said, tearing up, recalling, recalling he thought, this isn't a dream, this is real life. Halverson, responding to a robbery call at the Casey's General Store in Coggin on June 20th, 2021, said he felt intense pain. He said he kept thinking, this is what it's like to be shot. This doesn't happen to people, just on TV, but it was happening to me. Halverson and two former Casey's employees testified on the first day of testimony in the trial of Stanley Donahue, 38, of Chicago, who is accused of two, count, of two counts of first-degree robbery, attempted murder of a peace officer, two counts of false imprisonment, willful, willful injury, attempt to elude disarming a peace officer, trafficking in stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. Donahue was arrested 14 hours after the robbery when a TV news crew spotted him walking along a highway. Peter Stiefel, uh, Donahue's attorney, said during the opening statements that he plans to show there is reasonable doubt that Donahue is the robber. 
An expert witness also will be called to testify as to the reliability of eyewitnesses. Halverson, during his testimony, said he first walked up to the store to see if he could see anyone inside. There was no clerk at the register, but he did see a black man with a garbage bag thrown over his shoulder near the front door. The man was wearing a hoodie, but he saw his face, he said. He said he planned to detain the man until he found out what was going on. Halverson said he reached for the man's arm and told him to turn around. That's when the man pulled away and started firing a gun. Halverson was shot seven times in the leg and hip, Assistant Lynn County Attorney Molly Anderson said in her opening statement. The deputy recovered and has returned to duty. A surveillance video played during Halverson's testimony showed the shooting and the deputy falling to the floor. Halverson said he fell face first just inside the front door. Quote, I had stars in my head, kind of dazed, Halverson said. He said he tried to move his leg but couldn't feel his legs and wondered if he was paralyzed. Halverson said he then felt tugging on his right side where his 40 caliber Glock was holstered and felt the gun being removed. Halverson said he told the man, please don't kill me, as he looked into the man's eyes. He thought the suspect left the store at that point. Halverson uh, said his body camera malfunctioned and didn't record the encounter. But he had his radio and was yelling for help. He said he was dazed and confused and without realizing it, <clears throat> pushed the radio's orange button that sends out a code one, meaning officer needs assistance. <clears throat> Halverson also said over the radio to tell his wife and kids that he loved them. He believed he was going to die. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks asked Halverson if he could identify the man who shot him. Halverson said it was Donahue and identified him in court. In earlier testimony, Jacob Christensen, 22, and Maddie Stepanek, 19, both former Casey's clerks, who were working the night of the robbery, also identified Donahue as the robbery suspect. Christensen said he was stalking cups and lids when a man came into the store. He greeted him, but the man didn't say anything and went to the bathroom. The man was wearing a black hood over his head, and Christensen couldn't see his face. Christensen said he went to the kitchen and told Stepanek something was going to happen and to stay down. He saw the suspect's van, which is the same one a co-worker from an earlier shift had left a note about. Christensen was at the register preparing safe drops, stacking money from the register with a clip and receipt that, if pulled, can trigger a silent alarm. The suspect uh, brought... Uh, a chocolate milk to the register and paid for it, then pulled out a small black pistol and told Christensen to give me the money. Christensen pulled out the dollar bill that triggered the alarm and started laying out the money for the suspect. The suspect also told him to empty a second register, which only had change. Donahue took numerous cigarettes, cartons, gift cards, car chargers, and older other items in front and in back of the front counter by the registers. He took Christensen's wallet and Stepanek's purse. <clears throat> he told Christensen to get Stepanek, but Christensen told her to call 911 before she came out of the kitchen, which, uh, <clears throat> which uh, she did. Donahue then came into the kitchen and ordered the two into the store's cooler. The trial resumes at 9 a.m. on Monday. <clears throat> All right, let's see what else we have here from the front page. Well, we have um, this story. State to pay 800, 800K, that's $800,000, to remove forever chemicals at C60. DNR will use federal funds uh, <clears throat> seek reimbursement from company. And this story is by Aaron, jo Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. 
The state will pay a contractor up to $834,000 to remove toxic forever chemicals from water in a 12 million gallon basin holding runoff from a December explosion and fire at the C60 facility in Marengo. The contract, signed Thursday, calls for Tetrasolve of Anderson, Indiana, to remove perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFSAs, uh, that came from firefighting foam used to fight the December 8, 2022 blast. Quote, this is an emergency situation to protect the health and welfare of the citizens of Iowa, the contract states. This contract will ensure that PFA's <coughs> components are treated below to, be, to below detection levels before being discharged into the Iowa River and protect the citizens of Marengo, who rely on the capacity of Basin C to prevent floodwaters from causing damage. The contract goes through June 30th, but calls for the water treatment to be done by the end of March, with removal of all waste materials and equipment by the end of April. Ah. Oh, pardon the delay. <laughs> all right, <clears throat> the story picks up here. Water tests December 9, 2022, showed the basin also tested high for diesel, benzene, and waste oil, products of C60, products C60 had stored at the plant where the company was trying to dissolve spent shingles into oil, sand, and fiberglass. It does not appear Tetrasol's work will involve removal of the, these chemicals. Iowa will pay Tetrasol with money from the American Rescue Plan Act, which Congress authorized in 2021 to help state and local governments recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and rebuild infrastructure. Iowa Department of Natural Resources officials said earlier this week they would seek reimbursement from C60 to pay for the basin cleanup but that language was not included in a consent order signed by both parties and approved by a judge. C60 agreed to the order to pay $333,580 to Ecosource, a Des Moines-based company to clean up contaminated oil, soil and water at the site. C60 also committed to put $75,000 in a trust account to fund assessment and remediation work. Those payments were made by a Thursday deadline, the Iowa Attorney General's Office confirmed on Friday. Minnesota-based 3M started manufacturing PFAs in the 1950s, putting the chemicals into several products, including Scotchgard Fabric Protector. The chemicals also were used to create aqueous film-forming foam used to cool and suppress liquid fuel fires. The foam now is being phased out because PFAs, commonly called forever chemicals, um, because they don't break down, are harmful to humans and animals. More than 20 Iowa fire departments responded to the C60 explosion and fire. <clears throat> which injured up to 15 people and caused an evacuation of houses near the C60 plant. One or more of the departments uh, brought drums of the aqueous film-forming foam. Iowa County Emergency Management Coordinator Josh Humphrey said last month, quote, we used 2,000 gallons of foam from several uh, different fire departments, he said. Uh, for these big commercial fires like this, you get what you get when you call for help. We're not faulting anybody. Removal of PFAs from the basin is important because that water will ultimately be pumped into the Iowa River, which supplies drinking water to communities downstream, including Iowa City. While the basin is cleaned up, the Iowa County Drainage District will create a diversion channel to allow snowmelt and rain to flow into the river, bypassing the stormwater basin, the Iowa DNR reported earlier this week. 
This will prevent the need for treating additional water inside the basin. All right, and with that, I will pause for a second and have a sip of coffee. Hmm. All right. Now I will open to the Iowa Today page. Well, first we have uh, this story, which appears under the headline, Spring Flood Risk Minimal for Eastern Iowa. <clears throat> Areas along the Mississippi River face flood risk that is slightly above normal. And this story is by Brittany Miller of the Gazette. This year's first spring flood outlook shows little risk of major flooding in eastern Iowa. But areas along the Mississippi River could see slightly above normal risks of flooding. The report from the National Weather Service Quad Cities Bureau stated, period, the outlook considers seasonal temperatures and precipitation, snow cover, soil moisture, and stream flows in projecting flood risks. Widespread uh, snowpacks stretch from the upper half of Iowa to Minnesota, varying from trace amounts to two inches of snow water equivalent. This is the amount of water that would cover the ground if snow were in a liquid state. Much of the region's snow cover is below normal. The deepest portions farther north hold four to eight inches of snow water equivalent. These snowpacks have begun to melt given the warmer temperatures. Going forward, much of the Midwest may see above-average temperatures, ranging between 1 and 3 degrees higher than normal. Eastern Iowa is mapped to be warmer than western Iowa, which may see marginally cool, cooler temperatures. Northern snowpacks lay over frozen ground, which could lead to flooding along the Mississippi River if rapid snowmelt occurs. The flood threats in the uh, NWS Quad Cities service area, however, appear mild. Quote, with little snowpack <clears throat> remaining locally, not much flooding impact is currently expected, according to the outlook. Any new snowfall can imp impact this in the future. If the frost in the ground, less than a foot locally from, for the most part, thaws early, the ground can soak up snow melt and rain. That will come in handy since the winter precipitation across most of the upper Mississippi River Basin, particularly in Minnesota and Wisconsin, is well above normal. Near normal uh, soil moisture levels will give the ground even more capacity to absorb water, especially with the abnormally dry to severe drought conditions the state has been experiencing. Uh, these conditions have persisted for months now, with no big indication of change uh, yet, the Thursday Outlook report stated. Nearly all of Iowa should encounter more precipitation than average, up to 300% in the northwest part of the state. Runoff that makes it to nearby waterways shouldn't threaten flooding, though, with most Iowa rivers at normal or below normal levels. Some rivers in north-central Iowa are above normal. The outlook found no eastern Iowa locations with high chances of flooding, according to the outlook. Some locations along the Mississippi River, generally near and downstream of the Quad Cities, have a 50% or higher chance of some flooding along with the lower Wapsipinicon and Rock Rivers. The stretch of the Cedar River near Cedar Rapids shows a very slim risk for flooding. The Iowa River shows a small chance of flooding. The forecasters noted that flood chances may fluctuate based on snowmelt and how much it rains this spring. A second spring flood outlook for eastern Iowa will be issued by the National Weather Service on February 23rd. All right. Let's see what else we have here. Well, we have this uh, story, <clears throat> uh, which appears under the headline, 
Bed Bath & Beyond, Closing Stores in Cedar Rapids and Coralville. Only one store in Clive will remain open in Iowa as retailer tries to avoid bankruptcy. Bed Bath & Beyond will be closing its stores in Cedar Rapids and Coralville as it tries to avoid or delay bankruptcy. The company also is closing its stores in Davenport and Sioux City, uh, the company announced this week. Only one store in Clive, west of Des Moines, will remain open in Iowa, according to the Des Moines Register. The retailer is offering discounts of 20% to 30% to clear out merchandise, a representative at the Coralville store said on Friday. The Cedar Rapids store at 4841st Avenue Northeast, pardon me, the Cedar Rapids store is at 4840 1st Avenue Northeast. The Coralville store is at 2515 Cor Corridor Way, just north of Interstate 80 and east of Coral Ridge Avenue, Highway 965. The Cedar Rapids, Davenport, and Sioux City closures were among the 150 closures announced this week. The Coralville closure had been announced previously. In total, the company is reducing the number of its stores from 760 to about 300, with the company keeping only its most profitable stores open in key markets. At its peak in 2017, the company had 1,552 stores. The retailer recently mustered more than $1 billion through institutional investors, led by Hudson Bay Capital, in its effort to avoid or delay bankruptcy, according to Bloomberg News. Bed Bath & Beyond has hired as bled cash for the last three years, reporting negative operating income since 2020. Sales have dipped in the double digits year in the double digits year over year since 2020, according to Bloomberg. CEO Sue Grove said in January the company is working with advisors to slash costs by $80 million to $100 million. All right. Let's see. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Well, we have this... Uh, Brief story. Marion City Council decides to fill upcoming vacancy with appointment. Candidate applications are due March 30th. The Marion City Council will appoint a resident to fill the vacancy created by Council Member Colette Atkins' resignation. The Council voted, voted Thursday to approve a recommendation from City staff to fill the vacancy through the appointment rather than a special election. Atkins, who has served on the Marion City Council since October 2018, announced her resignation last week. It is effective March 31st. To be eligible for consideration for appointment, candidates must be registered voters, registered voters of the City of Marion and residents of Ward 1, which covers the southwest quadrant of the city. Eligible residents must submit a resume and a letter of, ex of application that expresses their desire to be considered for appointment. Documents should be addressed to the City Council in care of the City Clerk at Marion City Hall, 1225 6th Avenue, Marion, uh, in Marion. <clears throat> there also can be, they also can be emailed to City Clerk at cityofmarion.org. Applications must be received by the city clerk by noon, March 30th. The council is expected to appoint a person in, to the post at its April 6th meeting. The successful candidate will be sworn into office that day. The, <clears throat> the council position will be on the November 2023 ballot. The appointed, uh, the appointed a city council member will serve until December 31st, 2023. According to Iowa Code, Marion voters have the right to file a petition asking for a special election. All right. 
Well, let's see what else we have here. <clears throat> I'm on the Insight page of the Gazette, where at the top of the page we uh, have this Gazette editorial. Park the Trucker Liability Law. <clears throat> Iowa lawmakers are considering a bill that would shield trucking companies from being sued for direct negligence in hiring, training, supervising, or trusting an employee if their drivers are involved in a serious crash. It would also limit non-economic damages at $1 million for crash victims stemming from pain, suffering, physical impairment, loss of companionship, employment, and other impacts. The bill has spawned strong reactions from opponents, including some Republicans in the GOP-controlled legislature. Quote, The American jury system is built on plaintiffs being able to recover their damages economic and non-economic, based on evidence presented to a jury. The 12 people that sit in a box and listen to the evidence and look the plaintiff in the eye, said Representative Brian Losey, Republican of Bondurant, an attorney who did personal injury and insurance claim work, according to reporting by the Gazette's Tim Barton. They are the ones in the American legal system that are entitled to, to determine how much pain and suffering and loss of enjoyment of life they're able to recover. It is, in my mind, very arrogant of us to even contemplate this. We strongly agree with Losey. We have a legal system designed to let jurors who hear the facts of a case answer questions of liability and damages. We see no compelling reason for lawmakers to put their thumb on the scales of justice. The bill, House Study Bill 114, is a bad fit for Iowa and would make our state the first to enact this sort of liability protection for trucking firms. For one thing, there's little evidence that Iowa is plagued by overzealous damage awards in these cases. The right of Iowans to have their day in court and seek just damages for harm caused by a tragic accident vastly outweighs the desire of trucking companies to keep their insurance rates down and make their liability levels more predictable. Economic development isn't more important than lives. Also, large trucks are involved in a higher percentage of fatal accidents in Iowa than the national average, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. NHTSA defines a large truck as any, me any medium or heavy truck, excluding buses and motor homes, with a gross vehicle weight rating greater than 10,000 pounds. These large trucks include both commercial and non-commercial vehicles. But the agency also reports that in 2020, 72% of crashes nationwide involving large trucks uh, involve trucks with a gross vehicle weight rating of more than 26,000 pounds. In Iowa, the percentage of fatal crashes involving large trucks in 2020 was 14.3% compared to a national average of 8.9%. Iowa is one of 17 states with percentages exceeding 10%. So now is not the time to reduce the ability of Iowans to seek damages for the many impacts of serious and fatal truck accidents. As in past years, lawmakers should scrap the legislation. And again, that is the Gazette's editorial. <clears throat> and uh, dropping down the page, we have uh, community letters. And today there's just one letter. Uh, this one from Kathy Hay of Wakan. Food stamp bill hurts Iowa's most vulnerable residents. Thirty-nine of our Republican House members, including many of those representing us in Northeast Iowa, have co-sponsored House File 3, which adds eligibility obstacles and restrictions on individuals and families using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. 
This program provides financial support for people in need to provide food on their table. 50% of the people who receive the support, pardon me, 50% of the food, let me begin that again, 50% of the people who receive the support, of, who receive this support children, and 24% are elderly. The money does not come from Iowa state taxes. It is a federal program. SNAP eligibility is based on income. This bill would add obstacles, including having to meet monthly requirements. Our friends and neighbors in Northeast Iowa could lose eligibility and access to food. I've always been proud and hopeful about our Northeast Iowa uh, value of taking care of our friends and neighbors, whoever they may be. This includes planting and harvesting on a neighbor's farm when there has been an accident, attending and contributing to fundraisers for our neighbors going through medical emergencies or loss of homes to a fire. I believe it also includes making sure that none of our neighbors go hungry, especially our most vulnerable, our children and elderly. It is a bill meant to punish people for needing help in hard times. Tell your Republican representative to vote no on uh, House File 3 and stop using our children and elderly as pawns in the politics game. And again, that letter is from Kathy Hay of Wacon. <clears throat> you are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for... Saturday, February 11th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now I will turn to the obituaries. First I'll have a sip of coffee. All right. Well, first up are the uh, short notices. From Arlington, Carol L. Strawn, 74, died Thursday, February 9th. Arrangements are with the Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home. From Cedar Rapids, Joseph Konechny, Jr., 89, died Friday, February 10th. Arrangements are with the Pepe Cuba Funeral Service. From Fort Atkinson, Lois Rausch, 91, died Thursday, February 9th. Arrangements are with the Helms Funeral Home. From Jessup, Richard J. Kimmerly, 44, died Thursday, February 9th. Uh, the White Funeral Home of Independence is handling the arrangements. From Makokoda, Virtus L. Scott, 91, died Thursday, February 9th. Uh, the Carson Celebration of Life Center is handling the arrangements. From Olwine, Sally Ives, 59, died Thursday, February 9th. Uh, the Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home is handling the arrangements. From Vinton, Marjorie known as Margie Elizabeth Dodds, 65, died Thursday, February 9th. The Van Steenhuis Teehan Funeral Home is managing the arrangements. From Wakan, Mark N. Benda, 43, died Thursday, February 9th. Uh, the Martin Grau Funeral Home is handling the arrangements. And now I will drop down the page uh, for the longer notices. From Manchester, Donald, also known as Bud Lahr, spelled L-A-H-R, 87, of Manchester, passed away on Thursday, February 9th, at the Good Neighbor Home in Manchester. Visitation for Bud will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, at Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Manchester. A massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 18th, with a wake from 9 until 10.15 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Manchester, with Reverend Gabriel Anderson officiating. Burial will take place at 
St. Mary's Catholic Cemetery <clears throat> in Manchester. The Bonenkamp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service is in charge of arrangements. <clears throat> From Iowa City, Chad E. Newmeyer, 32, of Iowa City, died Wednesday, February 1st at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. A time to remember and celebrate Chad's life for for family and friends will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, March 4th at the Eagles Lodge, 225 Highway 1 in Iowa City. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with his family, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Services website at www.gayandchia.com. From Cedar Rapids, Paul Eldon Neal, 82, of Cedar Rapids, a Marine veteran, passed away February 10th. There will be no funeral service. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. From Manchester, Carlotta Marie, also known as Carla Harder, 72, of Manchester, passed away on Thursday, February 9th. Memorial services will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 18th, at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Manchester, with the Reverend David Weber officiating. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 18th, at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Manchester. From Cedar Rapids, Georgine Stapleton, 96, of Cedar Rapids, uh, passed away peacefully on February 8th. There will be no service but grave, but graveside for the family. She will be cremated and interred in Perry next to her husband. In, from Iowa City, William, also known as Bill George McCready, passed away on February 9th in Iowa City. Bill's family will receive guests at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service, 2720 Muscatine Avenue in Iowa City, on Tuesday, February 14th from 4 to 7 p.m. Memorial, memorial contributions for Bill are, suggest, are suggested to the Essence of Life Hospice. For a complete obituary or to share a memory or condolence with uh, her family, uh, please visit Gay and Chia Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandchia.com. Uh, from Iowa City, Stephen W. Cox, a lifetime resident of Iowa City, died Monday, January 30th, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Um, no public services are planned. He will be buried with family at... Memory Garden Cemetery, Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Services, cared for Stephen and his family. And finally, <clears throat> from Norway, Wayne Orville Riley passed away at the Colonial Manor in Amana on February 9th. Funeral services, a funeral service is at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 15th, at Norway United Methodist Church in Norway, uh, with visitation one hour prior to the service. Burial will take place at Linwood Cemetery uh, in Amana with military honors. Memorials may be directed to Norway United Methodist Church or Norway American Legion, post 234. Uh, online condolences can be sent to the family at www.newhousefuneralservice.com. And the Brosh serv Funeral Service of Norway is assisting the family. And now, let's see what else we have here. I will pause for a sip of coffee. All right, let's let's read some sports. All right, let's see what's been happening in sports. 
Well, we have this um, story on high school boys wrestling. Road to State, a little shorter now. And the story is by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette. The road to the state wrestling tournament is different this week. The trek is shorter for small schools, while all classes will see more, wrestle- see more wrestlers advance than previous seasons. Wrestlers from across the state in all three classes will wrestle in IHSAA district tournaments today. They will attempt to qualify, qualify for the state tournament February 15th to 18th at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Just how they qualify depends on the class for competition. In Class 3A, the top three at each of the eight districts will advance to fill the new 24-person brackets, which increases the total of state qualifiers to 1,008, with 336 in each class. The top two at each weight in the 12 districts in 1A and 2A advance. The change will add rounds to all districts. First round losers are no longer limited to fifth as a best finish. Wrestlers are able to come back for true third place. Also, wrestlebacks still will be able still will be held for state seating purposes and not to determine qualifiers. Quote, I do not like pardon me, I do like the new format with three kids getting to state. Cedar Rapids, Washington coach uh, J.P. Graham said, I feel like we have had kids in the past that were deserving but couldn't get by the top two guys. We were feeling better about our chances of it with only two qualifiers this year, but three qualifiers gives you a little room for mistakes, especially if you happen to lose first round. Now you can still come back to third. Our kids are feeling more confident for these reasons also. Cedar Rapids Jefferson will host Cedar Rapids Kennedy, Cedar Rapids Prairie, Cedar Rapids Washington, Clear Creek Amana, uh, Marion, Ottumwa, and second-ranked Waverly, Shell Rock. In most seasons, the Gohawks would hoard state berths, leaving others to share the rest. Uh, Quote, Getting more kids to state is important for our program, Graham said. We've worked hard to improve our team, our team culture, so our kids getting rewarded with a trip to state helps motivate our younger kids. Class 3A is the least impacted. The eight districts still consist of eight teams apiece. One concern is the expanded state field. Uh, One concern is the expanded state field will lower the competition level of the early rounds. Um, Quote, my thoughts beforehand is it will water down being a state qualifier. Iowa City High School coach Corey Connell said, Connell (laughs) said, but there are some loaded weights that it gives an opportunity to those guys. The Little Hawks are ranked sixth and travel to number four Bentendorf competing with Iowa City, Liberty, Burlington, Davenport, North Davenport, um, Davenport North, Davenport West, Dubuque Senior, and Fort Madison. Eighth-ranked Linmar and Cedar Rapids Xavier head to Marshalltown with Ankeny, uh, Centennial, Cedar Falls, Mason City, Waterloo East, and Waterloo West. Third-ranked West Delaware, Independence, and Williamsburg are among 2A district hosts. Number two, Lisbon travels to Sigourney, while number four, Albernet competes at Denver. All right. All right, now we have uh, what's this little piece on girls' high school basketball. Old Wine's improvement led by freshmen five regional games to watch in Class 3A and 2A. And this story is by Jeff Linder of the Gazette. In raw terms of wins and losses, the most improved girls basketball team in the area is Olwine. A two-win outfit last year, the Huskies jumped all the way to 11-11 and 11 this season. Two big reasons are two newcomers, McKenzie C. and Hayden Becker. Both freshmen average 
26.5 points between them. Old Wine, which didn't win a league game in 2021-22, had an opportunity to share the North Iowa Cedar League East Division Championship, but, but was upset in its regular season finale Tuesday, 61-51 at Union Community. The Huskies get an immediate opportunity to make reparations. They host Union 4-18 in a Class 3A regional quarterfinal tonight. There are five, um, five games in the area's best 3A quarterfinals and 2A first-round games Saturday, and they are Tipton uh, at 7-14, and 14, is at Mount Vernon, 14 and 7. Uh, Union Community at 4 and 18 is at Owine, 11 and 11. Williamsburg at 5 and 16 is at West Liberty, 15 and 6. Walcon at 13 and 8 is at North Fayette Valley at 14 and 7. And West Branch at 5 and 16 is at Lisbon, 10 and 11. Okay. And now let's see what else we have here. Well, pardon, pardon my delay. I will turn to the back page of the Gazette for today's Dear Abby column. And this column appears under the headline Mother Sees Trouble in Son's Living Arrangement. Dear Abby, my 44-year-old son is a long-haul driver. His girlfriend has 14-year-old and 17-year-old daughters who are high-functioning autistic. My son thinks they should have chores because they need to learn to live independently. He says that they should be on the Internet for only four hours per day and that once they graduate they will have to be on their own. They don't clean their room or pick up after themselves. My son has told his girlfriend that if they don't learn how to do it now they won't know once they move out. His girlfriend does nothing to help her girls learn to become independent. She receives child support and works part-time. She doesn't think she should help pay for things because he makes good money. They agree when she moved in that she would pay half the expenses. What do you think of this situation? And this letter is signed, Disgusted in Minnesota. <clears throat> Dear Disgusted, Your son's girlfriend has reneged on her promise, and your son has allowed it. This woman is not only irresponsible, she's a terrible parent by fostering her daughter's de dependence. When the girls turn 18, nothing will change, and he should expect to support the three of them until he finally has had enough of this arrangement. If you have shared your feelings with him and he has chosen to tolerate the status quo, then quit wasting your breath. It is his life and his choice. And that is the Dear Abby column for the day. <clears throat> and now I will flip through the paper to see what else we have here. Uh, let's see. Well, well, we have this story on the living page of the Gazette. It, uh, it appears under the headline, Portal into the Past, Glimpse into the Future. Orchestra Iowa documentary shows how humble beginnings became a symbol of Cedar Rapids' perseverance. And this story is by Elijah Decius of the Gazette. <clears throat> Don't you think, <clears throat> quote, don't you think Cedar Rapids ought to have an orchestra? Insurance agent E.A. Hazelton asked in 1922. The rhetorical question was the inception of the Cedar Rapids Symphony Orchestra, now Orchestra Iowa, one of the most respected professional symphonies in the Midwest. As Orchestra Iowa celebrates 100 years of excellence, a new film shows how many times the Cedar Rapids community said yes. 
The documentary from Creative Gene uh, Films narrates its first century through an evolution in professionalism. The flood of 2008, the derecho of 2020, and the pandemic as the legacy institution positions itself for the next century. Quote, to come into this milestone is an indication of how much this community loves its orchestra and how much it stood by this orchestra through a long history of ups and downs, said maestro Tim Hankowicz, the orchestra's music director. So this is a really important moment for us to not only celebrate uh, that we made it this far, but also to reinvigorate it. So we'll be here in another hundred years. With no video footage to pull from, the documentary film's format borrowed heavily from the style popularized by PBS documentary maker, filmmaker Ken Burns, with a heavy emphasis on historical photos using voiceover from those most intimately involved with the orchestra over the years. The film gives the biggest microphone to the voices who know how to tell the story best. Quote, we wanted to tell the story of how this orchestra has always been part and parcel because of the community, it, because of the community. It exists because of the community, and the community benefits greatly because of its existence, said Ben Marlowe, writer for the film from Creative Gene Films. The story reveals itself through talking with the musicians and directors, and the principal people of the orchestra. It was so important to let the people's voices tell the story. Viewers will learn how the orchestra quickly outgrew its first home at Sinclair Memorial Chapel. Its move to the Paramount Theater, the leaders who turned a pool of community talent into a formidable band of professionals, and its modern programs that invest a significant amount into educating the next generation, instilling a sense of appreciation that will reap support for the organization for decades to come. <clears throat> Quote, we wanted a greater appreciation for the orchestra beyond appreciation um, in the concerts, said Candy Wong, executive producer who recruited Marlowe and video producer Paul Marion to commemorate Orchestra Iowa's 100th birthday. I'm very much of the opinion that without creativity, there is nothing. What better way than the arts to try and instill in people a sense of, I can do something, I can do something, I can offer something. The late Barnes O'Donnell, former president of the Symphony Board, tells the story of finessing the donation of the abandoned Paramount Theater to the city and funding and fundraising $1 million to renovate it into a new home for the orchestra. Another person interviewed, Diane Jacobs, played the cello from 1950 to 2011 for every conductor in one of the oldest continuously operating orchestras west of the Mississippi River. O'Donnell's interview was captured before he died in December. While, film, while filming numerous hours of interviews over 11 months, the documentary encountered several challenges. By volunteering their time, Marion and Marlowe helped solve the first one, no budget to produce the film. Uh, quote, we think Orchestra Iowa is the lifeblood of the community. It's all about community, Marlowe said. If the community doesn't support it, um, and give, doesn't support it, and gives, let me start that again. If the community, if the community doesn't support it, and give to those groups, we're at a deep loss. <clears throat> uh, now with about 70 professional players sourced from strong talent markets across the country, C Cedar Rapids punches above its weight for a mid-sized Iowa city. But surviving 100 years involved several moments of deep loss. Through it all, Marion called the story of one of the cities. Marion called the story one of the city's survival. 
The flood of 2008 posed one of the first practical challenges for documenting the orchestra's history. Although the orchestra kept meticulous records uh, throughout its history, most were destroyed by the flood. Marion and Marlowe relied on articles from the Gazette and the History Center's archives to bring to life most of the organizing organiza- organization's early history. Marlowe said, quote, It was so emotional to come back and see destruction from the flood. They were determined not to let it go. After reconstructing the Paramount, the COVID-19 pandemic took a significant hit on arts and culture organizations reliant on in-person shows. Then damage from the August 2020 show destroyed the orchestra's collection of printed music, about $40,000. Uh, quote, it's, uh, it's very dramatic. We tried to make this as emotionally evocative as we could, Marion said. Hoping to engage the next generation, the film incorporates what Orchestra Iowa is doing <clears throat> to pivot for the next 100 years. As the typical classical music audience grows older, the filmmakers credit current music director Hankowicz with efforts to diversify the orchestra into a more inclusive organization that reflects the future of Iowa. The title, 100 Years Into Our Future, has a particular emphasis on the hour to reflect the inclusivity that has always been at the heart of the community-led organization. Uh, Quote, the film was a way to highlight the very humble beginnings of the orchestra and how far it's progressed into what it is today, said Jeff Collier, Orchestra Iowa's executive director. I think it's an opportunity to reflect on the history of the orchestra and the role it's played in the community. And, and that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 11th. I'm your reader, Jim Hill. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.